0: That's for your physical health. Imagine your mental health, it's not even a concept. We
1: were practicing mental health and actually it's not the Western world who even brought us into it. No one taught me the word for sex growing up. You can't be loud. I mean, if I stuck to all those things then I wouldn't be a psychiatrist right now. Do you
0: know what I mean? Hi, welcome to Secrets We're Shown, a series all about having difficult conversations but with serious joy. This episode is specifically about cultural sensitivity in a British-Asian context and we're focusing specifically on Tamil and Vietnamese narratives. I'm joined by the lovely Anuja. Hi
1: everyone, I'm Anuja. I am a doctor in East London and a practicing psychiatrist specialising in child and adolescent mental health services. But more importantly, I'm a director of ANBU UK and ANBU UK stands for Abuse Never Becomes Us UK, a non-profit organisation, a UK registered charity that support adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse within the Tamil community.
0: We're going to be talking a lot about Anbu's work, but specifically also about cultural differences in disclosing, in support services, family narratives and education. Before we start, we just want to describe a little bit about what Tamil and Vietnamese is, just so for people who aren't really aware of these parts of the world and where their prevalence is in Britain. So did you want to start by explaining a little bit about like what Tamil actually is?
1: So Tamil is a language. In terms of our charity, predominantly they're the Tamil diaspora from Ulam Tamil, so from Sri Lanka. Because of the war conflict that was going on in Sri Lanka and the genocide, there was forced migration. So that's why a lot of Tamil people then had to move to countries that would allow them to seek asylum. So Canada, Australia, Europe, particularly the UK, that's why there's a lot of Tamil people in London. Different generations are affected in different ways by the war, and certain impacts of the trauma has gone down generations.
0: And it's interesting, because when we were talking off camera, there was so much similarities with the Vietnamese context as well, because of the war in Vietnam, a lot of people were forced to migrate. And just for a bit of rough numbers, though we know statistics are never 100% accurate... There's roughly 55,000 Vietnamese people living in the UK. And there's roughly 200,000 Earlham Tamils living in the UK as well. So it's quite interesting because even though the numbers are quite different, there's still a lot of those similarities. And obviously being Tamil or Vietnamese living in the UK brings a whole other dialogue to it as well. The first thing I kind of wanted to touch on was intergenerational trauma, this forced migration and how that can sometimes play out in child sexual abuse.
1: We usually divide it into collective trauma and individual trauma. Mm -hmm. So there's the collective trauma, which is the impact of the war in Sri Lanka. It's sort of normalised in our identity as Tamil people. Our parents don't talk about it they were forced to migrate and actually because they had to try and survive they did everything they could to try and survive in a country where English isn't their first language where they're financially struggling a lot of them don't have degrees um, they were trying to get any sort of jobs that they could etc so then when someone who has been impacted by childhood sexual abuse then discloses to their parents or their families, they find it difficult to understand how that can impact a child or Mm. even an adult survivor of CSA. Because to them, they had to hear shellings, they had to hear bombs, there was so many disappearances, unexplained disappearances in Sri Lanka, etc. They dealt with that by internalising it, compartmentalising and trying to survive in their host country. So when they now have a disclosure from a survivor, They don't know how, they don't understand how, um, they can have mental health difficulties from that and how to have those conversations about
0: CSA. Yeah. This, this is really resonating with me as well. I remember when I was first disclosing and someone in the Vietnamese family said, unfortunately, Everyone else is just going to see this as a drop of water in an ocean of trauma that they've already gone through, you know. And at the end of the day, like, you're physically safe. You weren't at risk from dying. Like, you didn't have to, like, cross an ocean to get here. All of these kinds of things. So, like, even though the thing you went through is bad, like, no one's going to see it as that bad. Mm. And I think that is a very common thing, especially with a lot of, like, British Asians who were forced to migrate. is like, oh, given all the hardships that my families have already gone through, am I even going to be validated in what I'm saying?
1: And a lot of survivors then feel like they're a burden to their families and they don't want to add to their struggles, especially when in our culture you don't speak about child abuse or sexual abuse. And so when you start having these conversations and then the response to your disclosure is not a healthy one or not a supportive one, then you, you start, you feel even more alone than when you initially disclosed.
0: And you also doubt yourself. I think there's a lot of risk of that because it's like, oh, is what I went through even bad? Oh, did I even go through it? Oh, should I even bother telling my family if they're not even going to respond to it very well anyway? Maybe I should keep it silent. And as we often see, those patterns happen again and again. And actually then it allows the person who's abusing to repeat, repeat, repeat without getting caught.
1: Sometimes the people feel as if it's the perpetrator that has silenced the survivor. And it's not just a perpetrator at times. Sometimes it can be your own family. It can be um, friends, your community, etc. I've personally gone through sexual harassment. I remember one occasion when I was told, don't tell anyone. That was the first line that was said to me when I disclosed. So... You know, you can be silenced even by the person that you're disclosing to. And that's the thing that we need to avoid. And that's why we need to have these healthy conversations
0: about it. One thing I find in my communities, I don't know if you agree, is to have simply the space to think about your abuse, about how you're feeling is such a luxury because so much of the time, especially for our elders, if you're second gen, you've been forced to migrate. You've been forced to survive. You don't have time to think about all the bad things that have happened. You don't have time to think how you're feeling and responding, you just plow on. The side effects of that mean that you don't necessarily, one, register what happened to you and two, have the time to register how this could emotionally affect others. Especially like even that joke, like, oh, it's only white middle-class people get therapy when therapy should be for everyone thinking things through should be for everyone it is because to have simply the time is a luxury
1: a lot of people don't want to think about the difficult parts of when they were in their home country so for example the shellings the bombs etc the war conflict they want to think about all the good parts where they were around their community where they could attend their places of worship easily where they could have fresh fruit vegetables seafood and sun Um, Um, so they want to think about those times and those memories. So it's also the want to process. And that's why it's really important to promote therapy in a way that actually sometimes when you haven't processed it, it comes out in different ways. And for example, in the Tamil community, there is a lot of alcohol dependence. And then from that, there's domestic abuse. People are going down the unhealthy coping mechanisms route because they haven't been given that safe space to explore their feelings, to sit with their feelings, to have that safe space where they can talk about how they genuinely feel so they close up and they they become guarded and they compartmentalize but actually it's having an effect on their families it's having an effect on the next generation and the generation after that even when someone makes a disclosure a lot of people don't know what to say to them and so sometimes it's just even telling people actually just saying I believe you or just Actively listening or being next to someone in itself is therapeutic. Recently, we had a research symposium. This was the first time I even saw quite a few South Asian researchers presenting research about the South Asian community. And there was a lot of discussion about honour and shame. And this is, again, culturally specific.
0: I think to put it bluntly in a way that loads of people will understand is... We Vietnamese, we have our own health practices. God knows the amount of medicated oil I carry in my bag all the time. Like we have our own ways of healing. Typically, the route that a lot of people will reach a doctor is a lot later on in their illnesses than other cultures because there is that kind of culture of, oh well, we didn't have healthcare systems that were free in our country. So we're used to like getting that holistic healthcare, doing our own remedy- remedies to delay having to go to a doctor. That's for your physical health. Imagine your mental health. It's not even a concept. Sometimes it can feel so so far away actually we we didn't have the
1: words for mental health in the vietnamese and you know ulam Thamul culture but actually we were practicing mental health because when we were going to a priest in a temple or a church that was spirituality. That was, hmm. you know, when we look at Hinduism or Buddhism, mindfulness, yoga, et cetera, came from sort of religious or cultural backgrounds. So we were practicing mental health. And actually, it's not the Western world who even brought us into it. We were doing that. We just didn't call it mental health. It's about actually naming it and saying, this is what we were doing. So we were practicing it even back then. Mm-hmm. And it's just, just about promoting it in a culturally sensitive way.
0: I think... <sighs> It's difficult because I see so much of the Vietnamese response to this as being like joy and smiling through the pain. Yeah, and I don't know if that—it's a trauma response.
1: Yeah, it is because it's—it's it's survival, right? If—if if you just compartmentalize and you know, if you just smile through the pain, it's like fake it till you make it. It's the same concept. It doesn't mean that people aren't spiritual or you know, mental health is everyone's health, right? Yeah. So, um, it's just about finding what's right for you.
0: I just wanted to talk a little bit about disclosure itself, in different cultural contexts, how this can be made more challenging. I can start by sharing a bit about the Vietnamese community, this notion that if you're telling something so deep and so dark and so shameful, that it should be something that's concealed. And particularly when I was disclosing to Vietnamese people, the first thing they'd say is, okay, you can forget about it now. And then instantly move on to being like the happy, jolly face, even though that pain was there, they were able to put on this face and ignore it because that's just what you do. I've had questions like, obviously, you're going to have the abuser at the wedding, right? Like, what are people going to say? The notion less became of like how to protect me, but more to how to protect the family reputation. And, and within that, that instantly meant the abuser who was in the family. And not only that, but when you have disclosures and you're already doubting yourself and you don't have the language for the thing that you've went through, it becomes less of a concept that you're thinking about. So your abuse kind of gets invalidated. 100%.
1: There's two things there. So one is the victim ba- blaming culture, and then the second thing is protecting the ob- abuser Mm. and so if we look at victim blaming culture even within the Tamil community for example when I was growing up I was told sit with your legs together don't challenge um, your elders you can't voice your opinions you can't be loud I mean if I stuck to all those things then I wouldn't be a psychiatrist right now do you know what I mean so actually it was because I was a loud person and I would challenge people that I went into the career that I did but imagine like someone's potential can really be affected by what the community is saying to you for example when they're telling you how to dress, how to speak, et cetera. Even if the abuse hasn't happened yet, it's already a victim-blaming culture that's already been cultivated. Then when someone discloses, don't tell anyone, this will bring shame to the family, why didn't you say anything at the time why didn't you speak out, why didn't you report it etc etc comes out and then at the same time oh yeah the abuser's coming to the wedding right, oh the abuser just got married right or even gaslighting sort of comments such as that didn't happen or you're lying, I don't believe you even that is a defence because parents are in denial sometimes a lot of the time, it's the shock, it's the denial it's every stage of grief that you could imagine possible because it it's a loss you don't ever want your child to ever uh, for their boundaries to ever be crossed and so to accept that and the fact that you couldn't protect them mm. that is something that's huge the fact that you couldn't protect your child and then they may say things that they genuinely don't mean but
0: unfortunately they said it now it's such an interesting line as well between respect for elders yeah and then like obviously the elders protecting the children In a culture which is so steeped in respect and so steeped in like respecting your elders, which in so many ways is very beautiful and and something I'm very proud of that I was brought up in that way. But like, you know, I was used to going to a family party and it's like, okay, so find the first oldest elder, you bow to them first or you hug them first or whatever. That is a very huge part of our culture. What it can sometimes create for an abuser's perspective is a culture where they are used to always being right and a culture where they are never questioned smallest smallest example like i remember one time like an elder in my family like left the tap running all night then found the tap forgot it was them told all of us off and then realized it was him but didn't apologize because you don't apologize as an elder right so then that creates a culture of like well whatever i say goes and some abusers can exploit that if i'm doing something to a child they won't dare question me they won't dare think oh this is something that i can push back against and it's the same with like oh go hug your elder how can that be exploited and i'm not saying that within the culture is embedded abuse i'm saying that there are cultural norms which can make it easier for abusers to exploit and things we should watch out for and then that opens up a whole problem with people. People worrying about their cultures being judged especially mm. if your culture is a minority in the UK at least then you're saying oh but this is quite common practice this that and the other then you can get worried that other people who are outsiders are going to judge your culture and not only is there the worry the stress and the fear that exists within your own community there's also the fear of how you should be representing mm. and you don't want to make your community look bad mm. so then you can't complain about this phenomenon to the external people and therefore you get this Vicious almost yeah like two vicious cycles of abuse right there's the external cultural judging and then there's the internal cultural confusion it just adds so much
1: to the trauma one of the things that we say is for example if your child does not want to sit on that person's lap then don't force them to we, we start really breaking down consent mm-hmm. and so we talk about safe touch uh, unsafe touch um, actually promoting autonomy in a child as young as four years old to be able to say no and actually everyone around that child respecting the fact that that child just said no. And that's why it's from a cultural lens, right? Because when an elder says, come here, give me a hug or a kiss me on the cheek, how dare you say anything? Uh, how dare you say no? Yeah. <laughs> it's what, what's kind of innate in our culture. But it's not, it doesn't come from a bad place, but it does need to be challenged a little. And this is constant throughout our lives because although we're talking about childhood sexual abuse, Sexual harassment, sexual abuse happens every day, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at home, etc. So it doesn't even just stop as under 18s. Even recently, I was asked the question, what do these perpetrators look like? (laughs) And... I was like, it could be anyone. Yeah. But it's the fact that people actually don't realise it can be anyone. The context was that we were talking about priests who were perpetrators. We were talking about tutors, so Russian masters is how, how we call them, being perpetrators, etc., or a family member mm. being a perpetrator. By saying that I am director of AMB UK, it starts off these conversations that I'm having with the older generation, whether they're in my family, whether they're strangers or other people, where they start learning that actually it could be anyone People don't realise that CSA, the person in front of you, isn't always a child. They can be your grandma who's gone through CSA, but actually they dealt with it in a different way because it wasn't so safe to be open about it. And it's about respecting everyone's autonomy. You need to think about, actually, if someone does disclose their abuse, that's courage, that's bravery, that's resilience. That's 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 them showing uh, vulnerability is courage.
0: How do you think the services that ANBU provides and counselling and charity services that are provided, how do they have to be culturally sensitive and like adjust to these kind of things we're talking about?
1: With ANBU UK, we're survivor-centered and community-led, what that actually means is that in terms of the survivor themselves, we ensure that if they're Tamil speaking survivors, that we provide them information in Tamil, that we signpost them to Tamil therapists and Tamil speaking counsellors, etc. And that in itself improves accessibility because if there's already a language barrier then they don't even realise how much support there is available to them especially in a community that doesn't talk about mental health and then on top of that we've gone towards Eastern practice which is something that we have been practicing for centuries um, that now the Western therapy system have really taken on board such as mindfulness meditation yoga we um, have a project called Transition and Wellbeing Project where we provide a group of survivors with group talking therapy as well as group art therapy and group yoga therapy. The therapist, she did something that was really interesting. When they said goodbye on their last session, she asked everyone to bring food and so they had a meal together to commemorate that. That's something that is very cultural to us but in Western practice there is that client-patient sort of relationship where you don't go past that boundary so the fact that we were able to incorporate that made people
0: feel more comfortable and at home. And I think that's the thing people so often forget, right? You're not just providing a service in a language. That, of course, is a huge part of it. But you're also culturally translating a lot of difficult issues. How do you even talk about this when there's not even the language for it like even if i chose to have therapy in vietnamese which i wouldn't because my vietnamese isn't that amazing but even if i did choose to have that no one taught me the word for sex growing up like i was i was brought up with my family they're not going to give you sex ed and then certainly not going to talk about sex and certainly not in vietnamese Mm -hmm. so then how do you even begin to find that word to then backwards communicate oh this is what's happened to me and then similarly with the therapy you want someone who's able to culturally translate not just the language but oh, okay, there's a lot of hierarchy within families. So what does it mean if a younger is talking up to an elder and disagreeing with them about how they've responded to things? Like that's an absolute no-go. And I think a lot of the time when I saw English speaking therapy from people who were white British, a lot of the advice they gave me, I was like, this is not going to apply in my context. Like this this is not helpful to me. And then it kind of puts you off even wanting to seek help in the first place.
1: Exactly. And even working for the NHS, the number of times I have heard people say well just get out of that situation or just speak up culturally it's it's not something you don't feel safe to do that no you your boundaries have already been violated when you've gone through csa and then on top of that you're being told to stop speaking and there's a lot of gaslighting as well etc but what we do is we don't judge them for that and we work with that and we start asking them where does that come from Why do you believe this? And then start changing their perception. I'll give you an example. We went to a temple. We were talking to a parents group. At the beginning, they were basically like, how dare you come to a temple, a holy place, and talk about sex? How dare you talk about abuse? But actually, by the end of the workshop, they were so grateful. And uh, uh, we did it in such a sensitive way as well, because it's not about judging the older generation, especially when they have gone through so much to even survive in the turmoil that they had to in Sri Lanka and here by even migrating. So it's about having no judgement, testing the waters in a way um, and trying to change their perception. We would do role plays as well. We always have a trained facilitator, whether they're a counsellor or a therapist, those who speak in Tamil as well, who can interpret or uh, translate. So it's as inclusive and as protected and safe as it can be when we have these conversations. Other times it does take some time to build rapport because they're worried that they may tell the community. So that's why even having someone who's Tamil speak about confidentiality in Tamil or in Tamil context is so important because then they can trust better and they can see actually someone's modelling that behaviour where they're in the community and they're talking about confidentiality and they won't speak to anyone else about it. So it's never pinpointing individuals and saying you're not doing this right, nothing like that. Actually, it's about all of us learning from each other. And even for us, we've learned from the younger generation We've learned from the older generation, and that's what every generation has been saying as well through all the work that we've done. So it is about learning from one another, not us feeling like we got all the answers. No, our community does have all the answers, but we need to work with them to try and find them.
0: That's so well said because anytime you have a situation of child sexual abuse, there are multiple generations involved, even if it's child on child abuse, because the people who are responsible for signposting and responding to that are typically from different generations as well. So you need to have at least three generations of dialogue because that's the only way to make it sustainable, to stop it from happening again as well.
1: We learnt from this by producing MDAG. So MDAG stands for Multidisciplinary Advisory Group and it's all the leads from Tamil organisations that do any work regarding mental health, for example, or child abuse. So they may be therapy services, safeguarding leads, um, forensic psychiatrists, etc. And we would share best practices with each other and the challenges that we've faced in providing our service. But then we started Open dialogue, and Open Dialogues is about bridging that gap between generations so that we understand our parents better, we understand our grandparents better, etc. But they can also understand us better, and improving that communication between generations.
0: It really reminds me because some of um, the most interesting lessons that I learned the most from are like in their 80s. Yeah. Shout out to all of you. <laughs> I learned so much from them about people growing up in an age where this was completely under-talked about. And actually, they have so much more experience of navigating the silence than, than I do for someone who like disclosed when they were in their teens. So it's really interesting to see how that learning is still relevant today for younger people. It's just maybe it's not quite the same language or we have phones now or whatever, but there's, those sentiments are still there. Even with
1: that, it's so interesting when you divide it between communities. When you look at the Jewish community, they of course, went through a genocide. Ukrainian communities, Syrian communities, um, Tamil community. Sometimes we we may be a generation behind, but we can see from other generations, from other communities, how things can progress, you know, what the challenges can be, and what space there is for the work that we do. So we also learn from other communities. The fact that we're saying that there are so many similarities between the Vietnamese community and
0: the Tamil community. And it's realizing that different cultures, different communities, they have got a very different experience and a lot. Of the time, sometimes harder experience than what you might consider the average. And a way to work with communities is to break down okay, this is the service I provide, this is the advice we typically give in XYZ situations. And you put all those bullet points down, then you take that to the different communities and you say, okay, where might there be a barrier in the advice I give? So, for example, we talked about police. If you're to say, okay, the first point of course should be the police, how is that gonna be disastrous in a lot of cases to different communities? If you're gonna give them advice about how to talk to their family, have you considered hierarchy? Have you considered religion? Have you considered all the different ways this might be a barrier for different cultures and communities and make sure that you have those different avenues available as well as people who speak their language who look like them or who understand the culture if not fully available for one-to-one service at least to have them consulting you on the service that you do provide that's
1: why focus groups and peer reviews are so
0: important exactly exactly. just for that
1: because you know I I wouldn't know everything about the Vietnamese culture you wouldn't know everything about the Tamil culture so the fact that I've learned so much yeah yeah, me too do you see what I mean so it's actually just having someone who represents that community or people that represent that community also helping you address such topics
0: well Anija you've given us a lot what do you think
1: about i just want to say thank you for making this such a safe space because Aww. honestly you and everyone here have made this such a lovely environment to even discuss such a sensitive topic
0: oh thank you thanks for bringing your joy as well <laughs> thank you for having a difficult conversation with serious joy and see you next time bye if you want more bite-sized content we also have a webisode version of this episode called the secrets out which focuses on more do's and don'ts for your own conversation. Find us on YouTube or by going to www.secretsworthsharing.com.